Well, that's just a creepy song. I don't even know what song that is. I don't know. They just put creepy. You got you, Shirley and Rob, the intern who's not even here, have loaded up uh, my show with. Uh, I wanted to play that's like. Bastille. It's who? Bastille. Bastille. Well, it's still a creepy song. Something. Hello to your mother. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, you know what? And I've got a guy here who's uh, actually a pretty good songwriter. I think probably if he decided to uh, have a career in songwriting, he could have had that. But he's chosen a career in comedy. So, uh, Jay Chris Newberg, how are you, man? I'm good. I have headphones on. You have headphones on. Can you hear in your headphones? I can hear you through not the headphones, but I can hear me through the headphones. That's the magic of radio. Okay. Okay. It feels magical. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you, uh, and you've and you brought someone with you? Yes. This is Mandy, my fiance. Mandy, your fiance? Yeah. Well, you know what? She. Do you still have baby fever? Oh, yeah. Mandy, Mandy has, like, permanent baby fever. Oh, do you really? Oh, yeah. you want another one? I want, like... More. Yeah, Aww. she does. Yeah. So she and I are divorced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're divorced. Oh, man. Uh, you brought her, and then you brought uh, a young man here. Is this your valet? Uh, this is my valet. This is uh, my buddy Daniel. He's uh, he's opening uh, for the weekend, so I said, we got to get up. Get hey, up. Daniel. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Do you have a last name? Uh, yeah, Weingarten. Weingarten? Yeah. Daniel Weingarten. Daniel Weingarten. Daniel Weingarten. Yeah. I like so. that. It's a, you know, there's like a, it's like a name of a theater. The Weingarten Theater presents. It is. Yeah. It is. It's actually the winter. There's a winter garden in somewhere. There's yeah. A, yeah. There's a Weingarten Real Estate Company, Weingarten Hospital, and then The Weingarten Theater seats, it's about, you know, 20 or 30, 16-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, dude, I, uh, I, it's been, what, about a year since the last time I saw you? The last time I was here, you were in another building. I was. And I was at another comedy club. Oh, okay. That, okay. That I believe has went under. Uh, it's currently on hiatus. Okay, that's a nice way of saying it's not here anymore. That's true. Well, here's the weird thing is that a lot of the people who are, uh, uh, were involved with that club are friends of ours, and they have, they have other clubs, and they are officially saying they're on hiatus. I, I, I can't tell you. Like, everyone who worked there was so nice. It was yeah. really great. It was just a hard place to play because there was just no people there. There were no people there. there Everyone no people was really there. nice. Well, you happen to be uh, this week at uh, um, what I think is one of the uh, uh, the best comedy clubs in the city, in the nation, on the planet, uh, in in the solar plexus of uh, of the universe, which is Rick Bronson's House of Comedy. It's it's just a very cool club. The way that the way that uh, from you know from the minute you walk in. To uh, the comics that they book, it's just a fantastic place. Now, is that your? Is this your first time there? It's my first time at this club, but I played Rick's clubs for years. Yeah, you played Minneapolis, Minneapolis, and Edmonton like probably ten times. He keeps saying he's going to open a club in New Jersey. He does keep saying that. Mandy, do you know do you know anything about this New Jersey club? The last I heard was like six months ago, and it was supposed to be breaking ground, but I don't know if it ever did. Is it going to be in a mall? What do you think? Probably, yeah. 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 Well, the House of Comedy is not in a mall. Which is great. I mean, here, but it's, it's not in a mall. But it's sort of mall-esque. It, it yeah. used to be a mall. Yeah. No, it, and then it kind of just turned into strip mall bars. Well, yeah, but I mean, that where, where it is right now, I mean, the street that it's on is like one of those faux city streets. Mm-hmm. Where it's not actually, you can kind of wander. I mean, you can drive on it. It's a street. But it's really kind of built to be kind of like... Uh, um, you know what Bourbon Street was or mm-hmm. San Antonio River Walk or anything like that where you can kind of wander around much casually. It's just a separate street built completely for entertainment. There's a few apartment complexes there. 
Do you yeah. put? Are you guys put up in an apartment there? We're put up in a condo across the street. Right across the street from the club. Very nice condo. Yeah. Really are nice you letting condo. Are you letting Daniel stay there? Yeah, he's staying on the other side of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. There's he doesn't have to sleep in a car. No, I mean he can, but that's you know his yeah, choice. It'd be fun. Plus, there's no car, so there's no car. There's no car. You flew in. I flew in. You I flew did. in. Southwest, seventy-five dollars round trip. No kidding. Yeah. Did you buy in advance? I bought it three days ago. You know, I've been hearing this. So I, I've been doing a lot of driving. Like uh, about uh, two weeks ago, I drove to Los Angeles and I spent a week in Los Angeles visiting my family and going to the beach and doing all that fun stuff. And then I flipped back here and grabbed Shirley and we went to San Diego to see Dead and Company. Okay. Okay. And it was just all driving. And I was talking to someone. They go that airline that the bottom has dropped out of air, air for a while. To fly between Phoenix and Los Angeles is almost like four hundred bucks, right? And you can yeah. barely avoid that. But here it's like cheap now. So cheap. cheap. Yeah. And then yeah, avoids that five six hour drive. You yeah. Know, convenience. It still takes. I mean, th- three hours from going to the airport and flying and getting here. But you know. Yeah. But more importantly, how good was Dad and Company? Uh, it was fantastic. John Mayer was. Did he? He was there, correct? Not, yeah. Not only was he fantastic, we saw um, uh, Dead and Company last December. Not New Year's Eve. They did a two-night run at the uh, at the Forum in Los Angeles. Okay. And they, it was still a fairly new configuration with John Mayer with the group. And uh, uh, and they were good, but it was ragged. But if you're, a, if you're a long-term deadhead like me, like my first dead show was in 1970. Okay. So if you're like a long-term deadhead, you got used to sometimes some very ragged shows for a wide variety of reasons. And the whole thing with the dead show was it would be ragged, but then there would be unimaginable brilliant musical brilliance then ragged again you know so you you dealt with that they were fantastic then but they've actually gelled this group dead and company which plays all music that had been played by the grateful dead the two original drummers original uh, rhythm guitarist lead guitarist bob weir uh, those are the three original members and now this new this new configuration is its own band right. I, I don't quite know how to describe it it's not like going to see leonard skinnerd and it's a bunch of people trying to re- recreate that exact sound, right. you know. Or it's not going to see Bob Dylan and he's so taking his songs apart and putting them back together. You're ten minutes into Hard Rain, it's going to fall before you figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. They got their own sound. Mayor is incredible. While paying uh, homage to what Garcia does is adding his own thing that actually adds to it without taking it away. It's a great fucking show. Yeah, great show. John, what's his name? Uh, Bruce Hornsby isn't on piano still, is he? No, Hornsby is not there. Uh, Jeff Ciminetti, who's been with uh, been either with Rat Dog, which is Bob Weir's side project, or right. Phil Lesh's side project, or all the other kind of incarnations since Jerry uh, Garcia left the stage. Uh, he's on he's on keyboards. So you got one keyboard player. Uh, I've seen him. We saw uh, we saw the Core Four in Santa Clara, uh, not last June, but you know, like a little over a year ago. So uh, it's it's a great sound, man. If you're looking for something really unique and fun, are you a deadhead? Do you? I've seen him four times. I mean, which is not a lot by any stretch of the imagination, but it was pretty interesting every time. Do you see uh, with with Garcia or uh, yeah. yeah yeah yeah? I saw him back in the like the Touch of Gray era. Sure, yeah. And, was a, you know, where'd you see him? I saw him in uh, I saw him at the Palace of Auburn Hills twice. And then I saw him at Deer Creek in Ohio. Yeah. And there was another place. I saw him in Indiana somewhere. Yeah. But it was just the whole carnival atmosphere of it. It's unlike anything. Like it was a, you know, it was a village. It was a village. That yeah. I've yeah. never seen anything like that since. And it was pretty. It was really fun to get caught up in. 
whatever the good stuff was that came out of that whole San Francisco '60s thing, you know, uh, there was a lot. You know, there was a lot of silliness that came out of it. A lot of bad came out, but a lot of good came out of it. Whatever is the good kind of you know uh, creative spiritual part of it is still carried on by these guys. So sure. it's a great show, man. You know, and I've seen all the different incarnations. I saw. Um, uh, in 2003, 2004, the core four had like uh, uh, Warren Haynes, who's uh, I know you're a guitar guy, so you know yeah, Warren Haynes is a fantastic guitarist. Uh, Jimmy Herring from Widespread Panic was with them for a while. Someone's buzzing. Um, so uh, and then um, and this current thing, which I think is going to stay together for a while, I highly recommend anybody check it out. If you love music, if you love great guitar music, you know it's it's a good show. Right on. So you, I mean, you are a guitar guy. You know, I, I've always been, uh, something I've never taught, and I've known you now for, um, the first time I met you, I picked you up at your house in the dark. Right. Yeah, no, this was like years ago. You were doing a show with someone named Chris Bennett in in Los Angeles. Yeah. And I was driving Chris to the show, and he said, hey, can we pick up J. Chris Newberg? And I go, yeah, sure. Okay. And you were living in the valley, I think. Uh-huh. And that's the first time I met you. It was, uh, um, you know, it was not like a weird thing. It wasn't like a weird thing, Daniel. Well, yeah, no, I'm just looking at Chris's face as, 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 yeah, as, as he's recollecting it right now. Yep. And now I'm starting to wonder what happened the rest of the night and how that went down. Uh, I can't tell you, man. That right. was too weird. No, nothing weird. I, I just <laughs> drove him to the show. And, and, yep. uh, yeah. uh, and then I, I saw you at um, Comedy Union. You okay. Yeah. So, uh, so I've known you a little bit because yeah. you were friends with friends of, of, of that I was uh, people Love I was associated. Yeah, Chris is a great guy. He has his own. Um, Do you ever see his Facebook live show he does from his apartment now? I bet it's brilliant. It's have, very funny. He is. I, I I I don't know if I've ever told you my favorite Chris Bennett story. So Chris Bennett opens up opened up for me at Rick's Club in Edmonton like when it first started. I remember when you guys went and did that. Yeah. Okay, and I don't know if I told you the story, but it's it's my it's it's my favorite Chris Bennett story. So Chris Bennett is this insanely animated dude. He's immediately likable. He's hysterical. And he's just, every time you're on a show with him, he's probably one of the funniest, if not the funniest comic on the show, no matter who's on it. And he just physically commits, whatever. So he um, he was drinking at the time. I was drinking at the time. This was after the show. And at the time, for the Edmonton um, Comedy Club, whatever it was called, or House of, not House of Comedy, it's like Comedy, it's Comic something. Whatever yeah. It, what's the Edmonton one called? Uh, the Comic Strip. The Comic Strip. So they're in this tiny hotel across from this parking structure. And I come in, and Chris goes, I just met two girls in the hallway. And we're going to do we're gonna do stand-up for them in their room. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, it's going to be great. And I go, I'm not going into some girl's room. And he's like, no, no, they've got snacks. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be amazing. It's going to be the greatest thing. It's going to be so fun. So I go, all right. And he goes, will you at least introduce me? I go, okay, <laughs> yeah, I'll introduce sure. So I go down there, and it's four girls, two in each bed, and they've got snacks. And they're just they're sitting straight ahead. And Chris, like, hands me a hairbrush out of their bathroom and goes introduce me and I go okay so I grab this hairbrush and I'm like all right are you guys ready are you ready for some hotel room comedy you this next guy you've seen him in the elevator please welcome Chris Bennett he 
comes out, grabs the hairbrush, and it was the most excited I've ever seen anyone. He's like, yeah! Yeah! Come on! Come on! Let's do this, Canada! Come on! All four <laughs> girls were horrified. <laughs> horrified. Their, their body language went from pulling back. And so then he started doing comedy, and they liked it. But then he turned on them, not like he just started getting yelly. And to the point where they were, and I had to cut them off. I was like, you're done, buddy. You gave him the light? Yeah, Yeah. the light. I gave him the light. (laughs) I was like, you're finished. Who who was the next act? Nobody. (laughs) There was no. But to this day, I still say, let's do this, Canada. Let's do this. Let's do this. He's a very funny, he's a very funny guy. He he was, uh, uh, he was and still is uh, one of my, one of my favorite comics. And uh, one of those guys who, if you, if like you have, like I have, where you've maybe watched, Hundreds, if not thousands, of comics, and there's times when someone's very funny, but you're going, "That's funny, that's funny, that's very funny." Ha ha ha! A guy would make me belly laugh, like tears in my eyes. Uh, but that's when I first met you, mm-hmm. okay? And what I and we've we've had um, we've had conversations over the years, you know, either casual or or on air like this. I'm not actually, and it's always been focused on comedy. But you are a guitar guy. I mean, you are a guitar player. That's true. Okay, and I mean, did you start out as a guitar player and morph into comedy, or? I started off as a bass player, and I morphed into a guitar player because we kept firing guitar players when I was in a band. Yeah. And then I started to enjoy guitar, but I I enjoyed guitar from more of a songwriting perspective than an actual Mm -hmm. playing perspective. I mean, I I love listening to guitar. I love guitar players, but I recognize my ability as more of a guitar George from the Dire Straits song you know with the rhythm I can play rhythm all the chords but I'm not really a great solo player and uh, it's much more fun watching other people do it now I've heard I've heard some guitar players um, uh, my younger brother uh, I started banging around on uh, on one and number but all I do is bang around but he had been a guitar player when we were kids I was a drummer he's a guitar player and he's really picked up and gotten serious with it right now but there's also a philosophy that and I've heard this, so you, you tell me that anybody can play lead, but playing rhythm actually takes. I mean, not anybody can play lead, but to solo around on on a piece, but to actually play rhythm and really be able to carry a song like that is sometimes one of the more difficult parts. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, I think to have good meter is really tricky. Yeah. I mean, if you have if you have rhythm, you have rhythm. I mean, if you can dance, you can dance. Some people just can't. Uh-huh. Um, I disagree, and I think that soloing is much more tricky. But I, I mean, I definitely know bad rhythm guitar players. So to answer your question, I've never heard that before. I think that's really cool. Yeah. And yeah, I'm, I'm a really good rhythm player. I'm a solid rhythm player. Play with or without a, tr- a click track, whatever. By myself, I know I'm keeping meter in time when I'm alone. But the thought of like trying to figure out any sort of solo just although I could do it and find like I could hear it yeah just no I can't I'm not technically proficient enough couldn't do like a Garcia thing I don't I don't know if, I don't know too many who can no it's like as my as my, as my brother has delved into a, a guitar and he's taking guitar lessons you know and he lives in Woodland Hills and his guitar teacher didn't really he knew the dead but didn't pay attention to the dead but Jerry wanted to learn how to play dead songs right and what he's told me is that his guitar teacher goes this guy was playing jazz chords over a blues rhythm that, that Garcia was doing things that, that no one else did, and that's what made it so unique and different. You know, so, um, and I don't think, I, I think that's one of the things with like the dead and, and, and groups like that. 
that it takes active listening, which is why they don't sometimes reach huge pop fame because so much of pop music is almost background. Well, I mean, I think with the dead, I mean, it's like they're the level of success they had was like by far larger than their fame. Yeah. You know, I mean, like you couldn't ask for, there were, there were bands that were much bigger that couldn't sell out that many shows. I mean, and they were doing constant, like, like seven, eight months a year on the road, selling out arenas and stadiums. At one, at one time they were the largest concert draw in America for like several years. Sure. Yeah. And, but I mean, and, and their fans were maniacal. And it's like, I remember, when I when I was at one of the first dead shows I went to, I remember everyone was like whispering and buzzing. They're like, "Oh, they played Dark Star last night." Like everyone was talking yeah. about it. And it was like, "Oh, they played. They haven't played it since this show." And they all knew exactly when the last time it was played, what it meant. And I was like, "I've never even heard the song. I'm here for Touch of Grey." You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There would be there. there you know, if you my first show was in 1970, and my mom and dad dropped me off, and they and then they picked me up wow. at a place called the Fox Theater in St. Louis. And a pig pen was with him. The new writers opened. I was 15. I'd heard like two or three of their songs. I think I more liked the name. It's Grateful Dead, man. It's Grateful and you're dead. You know, like that. And uh, I had no idea what I was walking into. And I got to admit, I was a little confused by the show. Mm-hmm. Because I'd only knew two or three of their songs. I'm thinking Acid Rock. And they were doing a lot of... They were doing... I don't think... I don't know if like Uncle John's band and stuff like that was out so long ago now. You know, for, it was almost 20 years ago. So, um, <laughs> so, uh, but that was my first show. But we, you saw, like, people that would come in, like you said, you came in through Touch of Grey, but they get involved, and then you listen to Dark Star, and you're going, my God, what is this? How did they do that? Yeah, they're not just doing the occasional recreational drugs. There's more of the yeah. few beers going on before that band practice. Yeah, well, you know, it's different now. Someone asked me to uh, describe a dead show now, and I go, well... Everybody's high except the band. Yeah. You know, like the band, they're all like, I mean, Bob Weir is, is still going because early in his career he went, I'm going to lay back from a lot of this I'm stuff. I'm going to live. Yeah, I'm going to live. I'm going to jog. What are you doing, Jerry? You're shooting what? I'm going to go for a jog. Yeah, exactly. You know, and even even the drummers kind of, uh, and, you know, and you think about it, these are drummers almost in their 70s, and they're playing like three hours. It's just nuts. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. I, um, yeah, like all that dead stuff was so cool and um i I lost my turn oh yeah that's what i was thinking it was so funny to me that all these like white like upper class middle school kids were putting like dancing bear acid stickers on everything yeah it's like do you even know what no but it's the dad and it's dancing (laughs) you're gonna know who bear was and dude you're you're talking about like open drug use they didn't but, get it. You know, it was uh, if people don't know who Bear and the Dancing Bear stickers are in honor of Bear, and Bear was actually the nickname for a guy named uh, Stanley Owsley. I did not know that. And Owsley was a, a, a crazy guy, and was also a sound engineer that did incredible stuff with sound. So I mean, they, the Dead were so like uh, allowing people to tape the shows for free, mm-hmm. and then be able to uh, trade those tapes. And uh, so many of the things, almost like a pre-Napster thing, live concerts that you could tape and download. Uh, Stanley Owsley was a chemist, and he was also a uh, sound engineer, and for a while managed the band. And his yeah. nickname was Bear, and he was, he was out of his mind. Uh-huh. Early in the 60s, he and a guy named Robert Hunter, who they were like broke college kids, answered an ad, probably one that Daniels answered many times by the look on his face, where it's a, a medical experiments where you get paid for, where you're going to test drugs on you. 
Well, this particular medical experiment was actually being ran secretly by um, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency. And what they had was LSD was kind of a new thing. And they were testing on people to see if it worked for mind control as a truth serum. Hmm. And both Owsley and Hunter took it and really liked it. And they went back and told their friends like Ken Kesey and some folk musicians they knew like Garcia and stuff about it. And Owsley figured out how to make it. Wow. So, and that's, you hear the story, the dead used to, uh, the original acid tests were at Ken Kesey's uh, farm where we'd drop acid at the same time and see what it would happen. So that's where the whole bear thing comes from. When I was a kid, Owsley made like a quarter million hits of acid. He wanted to get the whole country high on acid. Wow. And there was LSD that like hit my city that we took. Not re- and It was like un- indescribable. That's what those guys were on. And kind of created a lot of that music, and that's where those bear stickers come from. And they were taking that stuff like candy, like just yeah. constantly. And it was two bucks for twelve hours. And I, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not telling anybody to do LSD by any stretch of the imagination. But it's interesting now, where I mean, LSD. That's, I mean, that's a legitimate form of therapy, especially low dose LSD, where yeah. people take very trace amounts, and it just changes their brain chemistry enough where they're still able to be productive throughout the day and you know go about their day. But it just, it, it's, it's. It's kind of a substitute for antidepressants for some cases, anti-anxiety. And now, see, I didn't know this. Low dose, L- low dose LSD therapy is a thing. Now, how do you know about this? Well, because I listen to podcasts and oh, they just okay. talk about weird shit like that. Okay. So that's why. But um, so yeah, it's interesting. I could never do any psychedelics. Cause I'm way too neurotic, and I just need to be in control. Um, but God bless anybody that can. It doesn't really, you know. When I was a kid, we we had this idea if we could give the rednecks, if we could dose the rednecks that they would stop beating us up. But instead, we were just then beat up by rednecks who were tripping. <laughs> <laughs> Man, look at that. Look at the way my fist is flying in your face. Uh, so I've, I, <laughs> I've, I've tripped twice. That was plenty. Yeah, yeah. You know, my first time was Halloween night, 1970. So It's um, just people's – anybody that I've talked to, it's either the most amazing experience – or the absolute most horrific experience. Or both squished next to squished each other. Squished next yeah. to each other. Yeah. And I'm just like, I'm good. I don't want to gamble on the horrific, you know, side. I, one of my friends, we were in um, Panama City Beach, and he took shrooms, and he had a bad shroom trip. He disappeared. We couldn't find him. So we're driving down the, down the high, or down, you know, the road where the hotel was at, and we just find him in a phone booth with no shirt on, no pants, just boxers, crying. And I'm like, this is amazing, but I do not want to be you right now. Yeah. At all. Yeah. Was it the phone booth or the... Well, the I think he thought he was... Uh, what was the name he of was that book? He, he was out of quarters. He was out of quarters. And he was in a phone booth. Yeah. He was in a phone booth. Yeah. Which and I no one goes in a phone and booth. And no one goes... I didn't even know a phone booth still existed. Yeah. I don't know where... He, but through the miracle of mushrooms, he was able to locate it. Honestly, maybe I was on mushrooms and I just saw a phone booth and I didn't even realize it. That's possible as well. He was crying because some guy kept trying to change into a cape. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's where the bear sticker comes from. I didn't, I didn't mean to go deep in the pain. No, no, I that. love that you told me. But just... it, it's kind of cool stuff to know. If you, I mean, the dead were actually connected to like the beat generation, the, the beat poets of San Francisco and stuff. So some, that's what makes their music so interesting. I think for a lot of musicians, or even for a lot of comics, there's like one influence or one um, school of thought that they just um, uh, mine, and it can work out very well. Jeff Foxworthy working the redneck mine. You know, and it worked out incredibly well. But for most, it kind of makes them sort of monosyllabic in everything that they, they write and everything they talk about. And same thing with musicians. But they had such a wide variety of interests. But what I wanted, the whole thing I wanted to ask you about is I've watched a lot of your stuff. 
you know, and uh, uh, you do a couple fascinating things in that you write very funny songs, but you're also able to make up songs in the moment. Now, I know that after a while, and I'm assuming you can correct me if I'm wrong, that make up songs in the moment, make up songs about people in the audience, that oftentimes, if you've been doing it for a while, you can almost base it on something from the past. They give an answer to something, or they're in a configuration at the table that's similar to one you saw in the past. So you're able to use an earlier experience. But you're able to make up songs on the fly. You're able to write songs. All right. So did you ever attempt to write, I don't want to say real songs because that would denigrate what you're doing, but write a regular song that might be played by pop musicians. Have you done that? Yeah. I mean, I, when I was in the band, it's from, well, I was in a band before I did comedy and we had four albums. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, what was the name of your band? Called the Voodoo Hippies. That's a good name. Out of, out of uh, Michigan? We were out of Michigan. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I guess, I mean, I, I guess you'd say they're real songs and um, they were whatever. It was some of it I listen to now and having been the main lyricist slash songwriter, some of it I'm like, that's a really cool lyric. Another I'm like, what? The, that means nothing. What, is, what the actual fuck is that? Like, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I, I wrote this song that I, I, like, I heard it on iTunes. It was on, um, it was actually, it was on Pandora, not iTunes. It was on Scramble, and the band somehow got a record that was on Pandora. And I was listening to the song, I'm like, God, this sounds really familiar. And I'm like, oh, that girl sounds really familiar, too, because we had a girl singer. Like, I know I've played this song before. And then I started knowing the words. I was like, oh, my God, I wrote this song when I was, like, 19 years old, and now it's on the radio, and or on the Pandora. And I'm like, I have no idea what it is or what it's about, what it means, anything. And I thought that was kind of trippy. Did you get any checks for that? You know, I think, well, I mean, based on the amount of the enormous stacks of money I get for my own musical royalties <laughs> from, from cable, rail, rail, like radio, I know it's somewhere in the area of like $19 every three months or something. That much? It's a lot of money. The, the whole industry has is, is changed rapidly, you know, and maybe not for the better for, for a lot of artists. I mean, um, uh, I was listening to Steve Earle, if you know who Steve Earle yeah. is who's a, a great singer-songwriter, fascinating guy, and he, uh, and he was talking about how a lot of songwriter friends are just basically starving right now because the whole system for royalty payments has been upended through uh, things like uh, SoundCloud and... and uh, 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 I can't even imagine. I mean, like, cause now the way technology is and the way things are is you could have just a big of a hit if you're assigned to, like, Warner Brothers and you go in the studio with, you know... Jimmy Iovine and you record this yeah. record and you could also then at the same time be in your room and put on like weird drum beats and burp to it and get 27 million hits on that and it goes viral and like 200 people listen to this and it's so like what's the incentive to actually you know try to make a big studio record when you can you literally use your phone yeah and, yeah and have the same or if not better success yeah, I, you know, I think that everything that's going to come out of uh, uh, what's almost been this uh, this quickening of uh, technology is going to be better, but for a while it's going to be a little weird or worse. You know, I mean, the music business has always been weird. Did you ever have a recording contract as a, with a, a with a label? I had both one with the band I was in and one myself. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I was talking with some friends of mine who were pretty high up in the music business one time. They told me a fascinating story. They go, we found a singer that we wanted to manage and produce and bring all the way, all the way. And they go, and we wanted to not rip them off. They said, we wanted to not rip them off. 
They said, so we created these contracts. He goes, and the whole philosophy was, if we're in the Bahamas, Otter and Mai Tais, off the music, they're sitting right next to us instead of starving in an apartment in North Hollywood. He goes, so we took the contracts to our lawyers, and our lawyers go, we can't do these contracts. And they go, why? He go, we don't know if they're enforceable. And they go, what do you mean? He go, well, we know that the other contracts are enforceable. And he said, you mean the contracts that have allowed people to rip off artists for years? And the lawyers went, yes, those contracts are enforceable. It's what you see um, possibly Kesha going through right now with, uh, with her manager, you know, mm -hmm. how much control he has. So there's always been the problem of the artist being duly compensated. But on the other hand, it's not even gotten worse because the system that would allow even pennies to the artist has kind of gone away. I think you're starting to see more of a move then towards more artists be just staying independent. I think Chance the Rapper is one right now, rapper out of Chicago. Yeah, I've heard that name. Yeah, who's, he's having a ton of a success as an independent artist. Has turned down multiple major record deals because he just doesn't see the point of giving giving away the rights to his music these days. Especially these points where you can plan your own tours nowadays and buy out venues and whatnot. And yeah. With social media, you can you know you can do all that you know PNA marketing work that labels used to do. You can just do that on your own. Yeah. If you have a big enough following. Well, that's I heard stories a few years ago. Friends of mine in the music business were going, "Did you hear about Ray? What he had to sell his house in Beverly Hills." I mean, guys who I even saw an interview with Bob. I read an interview with Bob Dylan one time. I saw it, but then I actually read it too, uh, where he said he goes, "There were people that were gods in his business who were." penniless now because yeah. things have changed but the live and, and also controlling other we have our own youtube channel you know we have our own ads it's really i don't know would you have preferred to be because you, you kind of straddle both eras okay would you prefer to be in the heyday of that era where a large organization signs you to a contract you get x amount of dollars your job is to only create or this era now where you have to be really if you want to make a living at it both businessman and artist um, I I think there's two ways of looking at it. I kind of wish I don't actually. You know what? I don't I don't think I would do anything differently because I know for as creative as I was and as much as I put out, there was just as much stuff that was fucking horrible. And I'm so glad that so many people didn't have access to that. Whereas now, if it's horrible or if it's not horrible, everyone can see it. Whereas before not it was really hard to get someone to listen to your stuff now it's almost impossible to get them to not listen to it because it's there so i guess to answer your question i suppose i see both sides but i'm okay like i know that i know that like okay he he's much younger he has much more of a knowledge of how things go viral and he has a bunch of viral videos i've had one or two but they've been accidental you know what i mean and so whereas he has these like oh i'm gonna have all these videos come out and it's gonna get this many views and it's planned, that's beyond me. I'm just like, can't we just do a song? And it's like, no, dude, it's, we gotta do this and that. And it, so I don't know if that was an answer, but I also haven't eaten breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we haven't eaten breakfast either. We got up we got up later than we normally do. And there's a great breakfast place downstairs and usually we hit it. Or, so Daniel, so you, you have uh, videos that have gone viral. Yeah, a few. Okay. Yeah, but it's not. It's not. It is. It has been accidental. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's not planned. Actually, the ones where you, you the every time I, I make a video that I think is gonna go viral doesn't go viral, and the ones that you're just like, oh, this was fun, 
those hits. So there's like no really way of telling. I think at the end of the day, it's just trying to make stuff that people are going to be able to react to. There's like you said, just like watching comics where there's certain comics, you're just like, oh, that was funny. And then there's the comics that like make you that, that actually like have a, a like a guttural reaction yeah. where it's you want to share it with your friend or remind you of a person. You're like, hey, this is you um, making some sort of a connection through the content. Yeah. Um, I so. think the idea is maybe just to really once you understand what you do or know what you want to do, it's like I, the stories are legion of. Uh, there's a song that uh, somebody used to play at uh, baseball games. Uh, hey na na na, hey hey goodbye. The band did not want to record that song. War. Yeah, no, that wasn't War. Uh, that did that. Uh, oh, War was why Steam. It, it, it's called uh, Steam. Um, so uh, they didn't want to record that song. They didn't like that song. They kind of half-assed did it, and that turned out to be this super mega hit. Our uh, Harrison Ford didn't want to do the uh, voiceover to Blade Runner. And that, and it, it, the story is he was so opposed to doing it. That's why it comes off so great because he was just doing it half-assed. You know, everyone's gonna die if you if you know his voiceover in Blade right. Runner. So that he was not really enamored of doing it, and that kind of created the vibe that he created. But no one thought that it was gonna be a hit. So what you're saying is you sit there and go, "This is gonna be the hit," and no one listens to it. And then you do, or you, no one watches it. And then something you go, I don't even know what this is, and the audience responds to it. Yeah, which I think it's, but I think what comes down to is just having fun creating whatever it is that you're creating. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could depth, I mean, because it comes across 100%. You can tell, like, the videos that I think are the funniest ones, the ones that I enjoyed making the most with my friends, you know, uh -huh. and sometimes they're really dumb, stupid ideas, but we had fun, and I think that comes across. And then there's ones where it's like, they're trying really hard to do something. They're really pushing they're it, They're really yeah. trying to, it's like, it's clear that there was there's an attempt being made as, as opposed to something just being organic and just naturally. Have you ever made a video where you already got a catchphrase in it? Like, uh-oh, my underwear are loose, and this is gonna be the hit. What? Um. <laughs> Where every time you walk in, you go, uh-oh, my underwear going to, you know, like a you know sitcom. What? You know what? No, like, <laughs> but I'm 100% going to do that now. Uh, I'm going to make that video. That would be a good idea. The viral, the, the worst sitcom are just, really, you know, really lousy. You set out to be terrible. You take all the elements of terrible, you know, like cute kids and, and bad catchphrases and slogans. And you know what, Chris? Today, let's think of 20 catchphrases for sitcoms. Mm -hmm. We'll record them on my phone, right. and I will post it. <laughs> let's see what happens. That's, um, yeah. what was, a oh, God, was it a mighty wind? What yeah, you, yeah. The way you just did that, you remind me of, what happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and he got stranger and stranger yeah. with that. We're eventually going, and actually, I wasn't even on the show. They would just cut to me going, what happened? What oh, was, God, that guy's so funny. Uh, he, he is hilarious. You know, a mighty wind, I was having a conversation with someone about a mighty wind the other day. We were talking about parodies. We were talking about um, uh, what Christopher Guest and Michael McKean, you know, mainly, I, I believe, it, mainly it's Christopher Guest who keeps those movies go waiting for Guffman. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, it started with Spinal Tap, yeah. you know, but... Uh, Best in Show. Yeah, yeah, Best in Show, which was, it's, you know, at first you're going to go, why do I want to watch a comedy about a dog show? And then you watch, God, it's, it's still And it still holds up. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever see Drop Dead Gorgeous? Still holds yeah. up. Still holds yeah, up. Yeah. So good. I Now, tell me if you, if you agree with this or disagree with this or, or even want to talk about it. Uh, I think that even though it's incredibly funny, the one that uh, if you're going to line them up one through ten and ten being least, Mighty Wind is the least. And I have a theory as to why. Okay. Okay. And it's that those guys were all old folkies. I mean, they grew up like I grew up rock and roll era. So right. I was... 
I was nine or ten when the Beatles came along. So by the sixties, I was an early teenager. Right. But they were in college and teenagers, late fifties, early sixties. So they were folkies, mm-hmm. and they love that stuff. And that they were a little too close to the source material to make as much fun of it as they could have. I agree. I get that. Yeah. I thought. I mean, I don't. I don't think no matter how many there are that are made, and I love all of them. I mean, you can. I can Spinal Tap will never not be fresh to me every time I watch it. Every but this time. one's eleven. This uh, one goes to eleven. I, like I, I've experienced every single every single thing in that movie in real life as since then. And now like I've been lost backstage. Yeah. Without like I was I went to go to I was at Madison Square Garden and I was there seeing uh, my buddy Russell play and I could not find the stage and I was just walking everywhere. Couldn't do it. Couldn't find it. And people were just like, no, you've got to go down here and then <laughs> turn left and then you're seeing elevator. And I'm like, okay. And I'm just like, yeah. It's an interesting style of comedy they do. Um, uh, Rick Overton, um, um, I had a conversation with him about what they do. And uh, do you know Rick? I know the name. You know the name. Do you know there's a commercial we're on TV right now? You know those GE commercials? The kid works for GE? Yeah. And where he goes and talks to his mom and dad? The guy goes, I, I dug out your grandpa's hammer. Okay. Okay, and, and uh, you can't pick it up. You can't pick up the hammer. I'm yeah. going to search Rick Overton real yeah, quick. Right. He's been working for... Forever. Forever. He's brilliant. I, yeah. I, when, I was, when I was real young and went to the improv, before I was a comic, I would go in there and watch him and go, I don't know who this guy is, but this guy is funny. He had uh, one of the most brilliant bits he had. Uh, and though, uh, at the time, every comic did a Jack Nicholson impersonation, uh-huh. and, it, it, and he did it... But he took it to a different level where he was making fun of comics throughout Los Angeles who were in trouble because they weren't getting laughs, calling on Jack Nicholson to save their act. Like a Superman Jack Nicholson. <laughs> <That's> hilarious. <laughs> Jack, there's a comic in the valley right now whose, whose airline bits aren't working. Save him, Jack. I'll be right there. God damn it. And it was one of the most brilliant bits I ever saw. I saw it like in the 80s. So uh, Overton has uh, was talking about uh, Christopher Guest and, and all the stuff that they do. Yes. Yeah, you know who I'm talking uh-huh. about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great guy. I mean, a, a wonderful, warm-hearted guy and a funny, funny, funny man who's seeing kind of a little bit of a resurgence right now. Yeah. You know? So, uh, but you're talking about here's, here's a, you said everything to happen Spinal Tap you've experienced everything. Okay. Uh, did you have like a smarmy British chick try to manage you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, good, good. So, uh, uh, <laughs> are you talking about Fran Drescher? <laughs> was, it, was she the smarmy British chick? Was she the smarmy British chick in she, Spinal Tap? Yeah, she's like... No, 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 she was introducing people at a party yeah, or something? Yeah, she was a part of the... She's like, what? She's like, look at the White Album. There's nothing on that goddamn cover. <laughs> uh, but, but no, there was no smarmy British chick. There was... I've, I've no, it, later on in Spinal Tap, when the band's going to break up and there's a the girlfriend... Oh, Janine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely experienced the Janine type character, like like a Yoko type, um, with a collaborator. Um, I've definitely experienced talking to a friend who's on, who, who a, a bigger comic friend of mine, who I don't know if he word for word said, "I've got to go to the lobby now and wait for the limo," but he may as well have, <laughs> and that was one of my favorite parts. Yeah, um, yeah, just everything, and like, I've I've I've. Totally had a puppet show open for me. <laughs> you know, I think I've had a puppet show open for me. What Rick said really kind of honed it together. You know, what it is, and what you said really, really clarifies it. They don't make anything up. 
they don't exaggerate anything. They're not doing anything exaggerated. They're just showing. It's almost. It's still undefinable. Rick says that he goes. They make it smaller. They don't make it bigger. Where most people do comedy are like, ah, you know, where they actually make it smaller. They focus on the small, what seem like insignificant moments in life, or in in the life of a band, you know. And um, it's just brilliant what they do. Just brilliant what they do. Yeah, I mean, it's just basically taking the the strange comments and kind of examining them. Like, for example, not in their situation, but I, I equate it to you have someone who's like, I really love to travel. I love traveling. It's what I, I love traveling. It's like, do you travel? No. <laughs> but I love to travel. And then, yeah. you, then you cut to someone who travels, mm-hmm. who all they want to do is not be fucking traveling. Uh-huh. So it's like basically then you have the theory that I love tra- I, I really love to travel unless I have to travel. <laughs> you know, because then I don't want to do that. <laughs> what am I in best in show? Which you which you mentioned earlier. One of my favorite things, and it's what were they the commentators? So they have a guy who is a straight up commentator, and then oftentimes where you know it, you see it in football where. Uh, you know, uh, God love him, Dennis Miller knew very little about football, but he put him on Monday Night Football because I thought it'd be funny to have a comic on, and it didn't really work. I mean, right. Dennis has failed his way up to multimillionaire status, you know, but um, uh, where they had Fred Willard, and uh, the line that always sticks with the whole thing is they're talking about the dogs, and he looks at the British guy and goes, I can bench press 400 pounds. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and he, okay, well, then very well, they always have They always have one of those weird moments in there because uh what was the um the holiday one the home for Purim or yeah oh god what is that what is that uh, what, oh what movie is it because that is so where yeah it's it's like award season yeah right oh um, yeah but in the same sort of way would they always have one of those random you know the the blonde woman who is in everything yeah she's so great they're having a conversation stifler's mom yeah stifler's yeah. mom they're having a conversation jennifer uh Coolidge. Yeah. 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 They're having a conversation and it's Michael McKeon, another guy with a beard, and then they're talking to a producer. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she goes, What about me? <laughs> and and that, you know people like that in your life, though. That's yeah. why. That's why, you know, you know the person who there's a there's a car accident and someone's in a hospital and they're the person coming and going, Oh, I couldn't find parking. You know, right. you know so is it. Yeah, she is. Uh, for your consideration. Mm-hmm. For, yeah. Yeah. That was, that, and that, that's a fantastic film. So funny. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, man. I think we're kind of at the end of it, unfortunately. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> all right. And that's why I was, I just, I always liked about you. He's like, all right, fine, whatever. I think, I think it, you know, like a, a, a meteor could hit your house. You go, meteor hit my house. You always been this blase, or are you like a Vulcan where you were overly emotional at one time and have now made yourself rather blase to roll with the punches? I don't know if I would use words like blase. Um, I would just take the Jessica Rabbit approach if I cannot really help how I was drawn. <laughs> you know? I mean, if a meteor is going to hit your house, you can either be bummed out about it or deal with it. Yeah, that's true. So, Has a meteor ever hit in your house? If it does, I'm going to deal with it. Yeah. Have you seen the, uh, the UFO lights over the uh, arch in St. Louis? Do you know about this? Mm-mm. All right, then we won't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> But that would be great, though. We're going to wrap it up. Let's talk about this, though. <laughs> let's talk about some UFO lights, everybody. Conspiracy theories Before now. we get out of here, let's just touch on one thing that's going to take at least 32 minutes. 
I just thought I'd ask. I don't know. I lived in St. Louis. So, you know, I grew up there, so there would be a place. I think if UFO showed up there, they go, no, let's go someplace. I had else. really good cheesecake in St. Louis one time. Did you? Yeah. What about me? <laughs> <laughs> Let me. So you, where'd you have cheesecake? Oh, I don't remember. It was like just a place that had cheesecake. But you remember the cheesecake? I remember the cheesecake. It was very good. I was abandoned in St. Louis for a day. <laughs> I was 14. Oh, my God. And I was by myself at a, at a, at a Holiday Inn. Well, you, it's good that at 14 that your strongest memory of being abandoned was eating cheesecake. I was a fat 14-year-old. Yeah, it, it could have been something else entirely. Uh, we could get into cheesecake because I have strong views on cheesecake, but we won't, man. Because right. you guys got to uh, drive in the rain. Mandy, thank you very much for uh, braving the uh, incredible uh, Arizona traffic in the rain this morning to bring these two very funny people to us. Jay Chris Newberg and Daniel Weingarten. Yes. Okay, yeah, I got it right the first time, and I, I screw up my own name. You guys are at the House of Comedy for two shows tonight, two shows Saturday, one show Sunday. Easy to get tickets, easy to find out about the show by going to houseofcomedy.net. That's houseofcomedy.net. You've been listening to This American Podcast, Comedy Edition on ComedySchoolsRadio.com. We'll be right back.